Hey, Villa. Hey, Paul. Hey, can you hear that? I think we've landed in New York. Can you hear it? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a fascinating background as we have here. It is. It's fantastic. So tell me, Villa, have you got another good joke for us today? Uh, not a good one. Sorry, sorry to say. It's uh, but at least I have a joke. So. Uh, and it is related to the beautiful weather we actually have here uh, for the past week or so in, in Finland, and that's actually quite rare. But yeah, so uh, why did it take so long for uh, for mobile network operators uh, to move to cloud services? I don't know. Why did it, Villa? Because of all the missed calls. Oh God, that's bad. <laughs> that's really bad. Oh well, thank work? you for that one. <laughs> so. On with the show, I think. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to FinTech Daydreaming, the podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of FinTech companies with real-life examples and guests from across the board. We are always seeking out interesting stories and insights from new emerging technologies to game-changing disruptive ideas brought to us by the big banks, technology companies, and FinTech startups all seeking to challenge the status quo with revolutionary ideas and big fantastic dreams. This is Fintech Daydreaming. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Paul Krogdahl, and I will be your host today for this fantastic episode. I'm joined, as always, by my close friend and co-host, Villa Sointu. Hey, Villa, we had this cool idea the other day, right, regarding our introduction segment around the joke. Why don't you share the idea with uh, our listeners, and maybe we can kick off some cool thing around this. Sure. Uh, not sure about the cool thing, but at least it's an idea, so might as well go with it. Uh, the uh, what we thought about is that we have these uh, epically bad jokes in the beginning, and uh, while we are having a lot of fun uh, coming up with these jokes, I thought it might be fun to give to give the opportunity for our audience to send us uh, their, uh, their their own jokes. So, what we're inviting you to do, dear listeners, is to is to send us your jokes uh, either through Anchor, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever means you want uh, uh, to, to send uh, some some of your hopefully good. Uh, perhaps bad jokes to us and uh, if we like the joke we will uh, read it out loud and give you a shout out uh, in the beginning segment so please uh, feel free to start sending jokes and uh, hopefully we will get some good ones i think that sounds like a great idea i tell you Villa, i'm really excited about the topic for today it is one that is core to both me as a consultant in the banking industry as well as you right working as a technologist within the largest bank here in the nordic region and i am super excited about our guest Today, we're going to venture into the exciting and complex world of hybrid cloud adoption in the banking industry with our fantastic guest, Howard Beauville. It is so cool to have Howard join us here today for this episode. Now, Howard joined IBM earlier this year as the senior vice president of hybrid cloud and is responsible for directing IBM's enterprise cloud strategy and growth across a global network of more than 60 cloud data centers in 19 countries with 18 availability zones across six regions. 
But before joining IBM, Howard was the chief technology officer at Bank of America, where he was responsible for the bank's infrastructure strategy across its eight lines of business and their successful journey to cloud, including the adoption of public cloud as part of their hybrid cloud environment. Now, whilst Howard is a high-flying executive living in New York with his wife and three children, he is a well-spoken Brit, just like myself. Hold on, Paul. I thought you were supposed yeah. to be Norwegian. Uh, okay, good point, Villa. Yes, technically I am Norwegian, right? I do carry a Norwegian passport, but I did grow up in England just outside of London. And most of my family are still living there. So I, I do actually consider myself a Brit. Well, a Brit with a Norwegian passport. I mean, maybe I should apply for dual nationality. Dude, you live in Finland. Obviously, what you need is a Finnish passport, my friend. Uh, that's an interesting idea. Maybe I'll think about it, right? But anyway... Back to our great guest, Howard. I, I should also add that he is extremely well-educated, having attended both Teesside University in Middlesbrough and Leeds University. I am so stoked to have him join us here on the show today. Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming, Howard. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. And actually, my, my last international trip was to Finland. <laughs> what a strange really? world we live in. To have enemies, Small world. Which is, on the, which is on the Arctic Circle. Yes, it is. Fantastic. T tell me, Howard, what's it like living in New York? I mean, I've, I've visited there several times, but obviously never lived there. Uh, is it really as cool as everybody makes out? It's a very diverse um, and inclusive uh, place. Once you've lived, going back to your position around nationality in New York for two years, you're an adopted New Yorker uh, because yeah. so many people come from different locations. So it's a great um place to live um, if you like being across lots of different diverse cultures um, but it's got so much in and around it as well it's got some of the best beaches in the world which will probably surprise you um, and some really good skiing up, uh, further up in, in the, uh, the east coast so it's, it's got a lot of diversity here so it's, it basically gives you everything in one place it does it does wonderful is, is that uh, police behind you howard this is what it is to be an Englishman in New York, pal. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, the discussion of hybrid cloud, which is the one we're going to go into today, you know, hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, and especially public cloud in banking is one I think I am engaged in almost daily. And now with the accelerated need for digitization and new expectations driven by the COVID pandemic, the question is no longer if a bank should consider hybrid cloud strategy, but rather when and what is the best approach going forwards. We have ongoing news reports almost daily regarding a growing number of cyber attacks on banks and the efforts of these digital native criminals getting away with money and, and customer data. But on the flip side of that, of this discussion, is the need for the incumbent banks to modernize their aging core systems, become more agile and flexible, and seek new ways to drive innovation and to stay relevant to existing and new customers, right? We are in a new world of hyper-personalized client centricity and an individual evaluating an app or a service in seconds with no patience um, to, to sort of delve into it. The, the banks today are facing an increased reduction in their existing money-making mechanisms as they are forced to move away from a traditional business model based on banking products towards a, a customer engagement-focused digital native world. 
Now, this, along with a pressure to reduce cost and increase flexibility, is driving the need for the banks to change and modernize their IT operations and infrastructure. And therefore, we come onto the discussion of cloud. And I could spend most of this episode myself just sitting here sharing my perspectives on the benefits of public cloud infrastructure in the context of banking and the concept of hybrid multi-cloud. But I think, Howard, I mean, with your role, with your history in, in Bank of America, I could think of no one else better positioned to, to explain, you know, how do you see the foundational elements of public cloud in a highly regulated domain? And justifications for banks to strategically adopt a hybrid multi-cloud infrastructure going forwards. Yeah, um, so thank you, Father Powell, and thank you, Villa, as well, in terms of the opening remarks. Um, you've always got to couch technology in a business context. Otherwise, you're not working for any real business imperative. You're working on science projects. Mm -hmm. And cloud is a term that is much, much over, overused. And in, in the context as to where we are now from the hype cycle, sometimes seen as a strategic destination in and of itself, which it isn't. It's a, it's a capability and it's a tool to allow companies to achieve their business imperatives. <clears throat> so what are those business imperatives that uh, any organization is looking to drive and, and what, how do they fit within a financial services uh, construct? Um, so as you mentioned um, in your opening remarks, pal, um, customers or people it, by and large have less and less patience or to translate it in other words, less and less time to be working through complex processes or complex um, me mechanisms to get services or to get products. Um, and there's a need for instant gratification driven by digital technology. Digital technology should be making things frictionless and convenient. And if it's so doing, then customers will feel attracted to the offering that you have. And therefore, we live in an experience world. In the past, we probably lived in a products world where you, you would work and buy a product and go through the various elements of a process to acquire that product. But in the digital world, you're, working, you're living with experiences. So how does the offering you get enrich the experience uh, in your life? And cloud as a capability, as a technology, allows companies to improve the quality of the experience that they provide to their customers. It can do that by actually massively reducing the amount of friction in a business process. Um, it can also do that by actually liberating the data that companies have to provide insights that can better inform the decisions of the offerings that they provide to their customers. And it can also pull through um, their supply chain increasingly, which is digital, to ensure that that part of the actual process flow is um, frictionless as well. And the final elements associated with the business process is the people that work within um, any organization, but in this context, the financial services company, and how cloud-based technologies can make the work of those people easier. So when they're actually interfacing with customers, they themselves can operate in a frictionless and convenient fashion, and therefore not be weighed down by bureaucracy in their own organizations. So at a high level, that's a business imperative that cloud can offer to customers. And the final point I'd make related to this question is then, in financial services, um, when you are the custodian and you have the responsibility of looking after people's uh, money and their wealth, there's a whole raft, quite rightly, of controls that you need to have in place to ensure that no errors, no issues, um, no cyber risk, no technical operational risk 
no data privacy risk can be introduced as you take on that responsibility of accountability and as a custodian of people's wealth. A fantastically good um, overview and introduction there. Thank you, Howard. I mean, one such bank that has successfully adopted a hybrid cloud strategy is, is Bank of America when you were there, right? And this successful journey was, as I said, spearheaded by you during your time at the bank as the CTO. I wonder if you could maybe talk us through the journey and give uh, uh, the listeners some insight into the, the critical elements you had to navigate to bring the bank onto a hybrid cloud infrastructure. Sure. So first and foremost, in the time that I have, the journey will sound like um, something that every step was perfectly made, and, and that wasn't the case. The, um, the journey started in 2012 and concluded its core mission of moving 80% of our workloads to a cloud um, architecture. Um, so over that six-year period, um, a lot of mistakes were made, but a lot of lessons were learned because of the culture that we, um, we fostered at the bank in terms of we do controlled experimentation, and with every step, we learn whether we've made the right step, and if we haven't, we learn in terms of what we need to do to go forward. But there was a number of key elements, and the first element was, as I mentioned at the top of the call, was you have to tie to the business imperative. You can't simply be doing technology for technology's sake. So back in 2012, we weren't even using the term cloud. We were looking to decalcify these business processes that I talked about to allow the bank to offer a frictionless and convenient experience across its eight lines of business. So it's consumer, small business, uh, wealth, um, corporate banking, institutional clients, and so on. So different business models, but using an architecture that could help decalcify the applications, the data, the digital supply chain, and the people, which are the four key components of any business processor. And we have this notion of um, transforming the, the bank from back to front. So through the applications, the data and the digital supply chain, the work we have to do there was to ensure it ran on an architecture. And that word is a key word I'll use again and again in this, this interview, but an architecture <clears throat> that would stand the test of time and allow that agility across the four, sorry, the three core platforms of the bank. So what were those three core platforms? It's obviously the hosting environments for the applications and the applications that sit on those hosting environments. It is the data and the way that you can um, manage your data, maintaining provenance, therefore ensuring that the output of the analytics that you do is at the highest integrity. And the third area is the developers to develop um, a pace. And across all three categories, the guiding principles were that we wanted to drive value creation from the applications and the application hosting, value creation from the data environments and value creation from the developers whilst ensuring that we have the optimal level of productivity and then all wrapped in the appropriate controls necessary for a financial institution. So there were the, the key components, and I'm happy to dive deeper into that kind of high-level piece. So just guide me where you want to take me, Villar, or Pal, on the, the conversation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a, another level down would be fantastic, Howard. We've, we've got time for that, so that would be a wonderful journey to go on. So, the, so what you need to do is you need to actually have an assessment of what, you have before you can actually determine where you want to get to. So this whole notion of having absolute clarity at a quantitative level of where you are. So when you go from, you know where you're going to and you have a clear direction of where you're going to. So a key, a key element in any of these journeys is to have the appropriate tool sets to have an assessment of all of the elements of applications that you have, all of the elements of data, 
how you host both of those areas, the tools that you have and so on. And wasn't, it wasn't the case in 2012, but it's absolutely the case now that the closer to real-time assessment of those assets that you have, those digital assets, um, and also the associated dependencies becomes more and more essential to ensure that you're making the right decisions before you embark upon your journey. Once you have that assessment of all of the physical and logical assets that you have, you then architecturally work through um, the approach you're going to take to transform them and deliver on the productivity and the value creation across the three stacks that I mentioned. It's, the, architect, the key architectural piece that we had was we took um, an approach to having open capabilities. And what I mean by that is we used um, OpenStack. Um, and the reason why we made the decision to use that as our key, one of our key architectural um, bedrocks was the, the need to really harness the full potential of cloud, both in terms of driving frictionless and convenient experiences for your customers, is to harness the benefit of actually having an open architecture that you can collaborate not only internally within your organization far more easily, but also externally. And it's proven time and time again that open source architectures are inherently more secure because it has more eyes upon them. But the pace of innovation that you get with open source capabilities is far quicker as well, particularly with something such as OpenStack, which then became OpenShift, and now we have the Red Hat OpenShift uh, Kubernetes capability. Um, because you're drawing upon a community of 8 million developers that are giving their time willingly and their enthusiasm willingly, willingly to keep that platform moving forward. That will always beat internal proprietary software development, whether it was in, within the bank or third-party software that you bought, uh, because there's just different imperatives and motivations for driving that. So that was a key component that we had to, and an architectural component to build our cloud on. And then it was a simple process of creating a series of forcing events to get the application and the infrastructure teams to collaborate to move to a far simpler architecture. So we moved away from hundreds and hundreds of different SKUs based upon the attributes and the characteristics of the applications that we had down to 14. Um, and moving to that level of um, simplicity also then drove um, an environment that was easier to manage from a cybersecurity perspective, and it was more resilient and more available and more performant from, from a technical operational risk perspective because you had less components that could break and you drove out complexity. Um, there's many of the threads I could talk about in terms of how you think about network, how you mm. think about the actual skills of the people that you have um, in terms of where you are on the from and how you think about that going forward into the two. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I keep getting engaged in with uh, with banks when I'm talking to them is, is almost going back to the foundational question of why. Why do we want to adopt cloud or why do we even want to be, be looking at public cloud? There is a lot of discussion on the perceived benefits of adopting, you know, a hybrid cloud strategy. I wonder, Villa, as someone who is working for a bank here in the Nordics, what is your view on, on this sort of move towards public cloud? Well, I guess I've even on the podcast, I've many times told, told the same joke and I'm going to go for it again, which is that there is no cloud. It's just someone else's computer. 
And I don't know any other organization on the planet that actually has taken that such in a such a serious way as, as banks and financial institutions in general. Because, I mean, it, it's it's a lot of the the questions around cloud are related to the fact that these are this is really capacity that sits outside the walls of the bank, uh, i.e., perceived to be a little bit out of uh, out of uh, the hands and control uh, of the banks, and uh, a lot of the compliance uh, work really goes into that direction. But I think there's a uh, there's a there's some merit to that. Of course, you need to understand the implications of uh, having somebody else manage your uh, manage the machinery, so to say, and when you outsource it. And yeah, there are great ways to control that. But I think the uh, one of the other things that uh, sometimes gets a little bit overlooked, especially in context of public cloud, uh, is the fact that uh, when you when you do have these public cloud services with massive amounts of uh, of users and uh, applications running on them. Uh, I think what you do get as well is, is scale uh, in terms of uh, not only capacity but also security. Just think about it. If if there is a, if there's ever a, some kind of a problem uh, in let's say one of the major cloud platform provider uh, uh, solutions, uh, then uh, the fix once it's in can be deployed in in very very fast way into the entire breadth of of these cloud services. Now, imagine if you're running your own data center, then you, your own IT department or your own operations has to has to take care of that and that's automatically slower as well. So you do benefit from this, uh, with the quick fixes uh, that come from uh, from this massive scale uh, cloud platform providers as well. Uh, maybe just to add to many of the great points uh, that, that Howard made. Uh, final final point uh, I want maybe wanted to mention as well is a little bit related to the business uh, aspect of, uh, of this. Now, we all we I, I'm kind of fascinated by uh, as a service models in general right now, and it occurred to me one day when I was talking to a customer is that the uh, the cloud the whole public cloud setup is actually uh, the the most successful as a service model ever deployed I think uh, globally if you think about it uh, if you're able to have computing capacity as a service like you are the threshold for you to start your own service whether it's a small service within a bank or whether you're a small fintech just uh, launching uh, not needing to actually buy hardware uh, and being able to pay as you go uh, for for this uh, cloud processing capability is no small feat uh, and the scale of it does completely completely change the way we create and consume digital services. Uh, and now, of course, there's an interesting discussion here uh, going towards uh, making everything work as a service, including equipment. But that's maybe a topic for another episode of, uh, of Fintech Daydreaming. Yeah, I mean, I've, there's even now discussions around banking as a service, right? But I like your, your point there around economies of scale. And I suppose, Howard, that's one of the that the key elements of, of the whole cloud paradigm, right, is the fact that you do get economies of scale from management, from security postures, etc. You do. I mean, so I talked about the business um, imperatives we're driving, but if you think about the capabilities or the elements that were driven, which is public domain that I'm about to share with you. So as, as Will has mentioned, there's a great scale out capability you got. So when we started the initiative, we were running at around um, it's kind of shy of a billion digital interactions per week, for example, on our consumer channels. Um, back in 2019, we were processing 9 billion digital interactions per week on our consumer channels. And this is just one across uh, eight lines of business. And we were doing that on 60% less infrastructure. Um, and we were doing it at a higher level of availability, materially high levels of availability. So the, the, the performance 
the stability of performance increased by 93% over that period. So massive scale and massive improvement in the actual quality of the performance. And then the other element associated with that was the economics. So we delivered all of that massive scale-out capability at a high level of performance. And as Villas mentioned, a, a reduced risk from a cybersecurity perspective. But we've taken out $1 billion of annualized expense. So the benefits of cloud beyond the business elements that I talked about in terms of the ability to offer a fantastic experience, be agile in terms of features that you deliver, has massive benefit in terms of um, the three elements I've gone through there, which is availability, uh, the ability to scale out at a, a lower unit cost, and to massively reduce your, co your, um, your, your actual costs, in this case, $2.1 billion. And then the final piece on that, which is very, very important, is the amount of carbon emissions and water used um, materially reduced as well. So strong environmental impact because we reduced our data center footprint, reduced the number of servers, therefore reduced our CO2 emissions and therefore reduced our water consumption. So very, very strong um, business, but also environmental benefits in terms of moving to cloud-based technologies. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion these days around responsible computing. So there's another you know, added benefit of, of going towards cloud. But when we're talking about banks, there's always one thing that comes up you know, right in the center, and, and that's compliance. So, so what's the elements around driving compliance and compliance support around public cloud? So, the, so as I mentioned, we started the journey back in 2012 and started to look at public cloud in 2015. Um, and the way that we thought about it was um, in two areas. We need to introduce governance in place for the entire financial institution so that there will be a singular clearinghouse for the decisions as to where workloads will be placed. So you could put your workload um, in any resource tool, whether it was x86, mainframe, or public cloud, but it had to go through um, a series of governance bodies, as you'd expect within a financial institution, to ensure that risk wasn't introduced into the firm. So what, how was risk measured? We simply took the actual control frameworks that we had for the management um, of workloads in the internal context and then applied those to the external context with some additional controls because of the differences uh, to Villa's point in terms of running your application on somebody else's computers outside of your own four walls of your data center. Those, four, those, those control frameworks for anybody that works within financial services will understand are extensive and they're nuanced. So control framework at a high level had 450 controls. It can then break down into, break down into many um, thousands of sub-controls um, within that. And, and our mission was to ensure that the experience for our developers was frictionless and convenient. So the governance body wasn't bureaucratic. It was intended to be quick to expedite decisions. And we also wanted to ensure that the consumption of the service wouldn't be bought, weighed down by all the various control frameworks. Um, but what we realized, or what I realized, was um, to do that in the chapter one of uh, cloud, you had to build those controls yourself. And every financial institution was, that was moving down the consumption of public cloud was all building their own controls against their own control framework um, across a range of different uh, laws, rules, and regs based upon the jurisdictions they operated within. And that really became um, a Pandora's box of lots of different issues, because essentially what the industry really needed was a, a, a set of standards for controls for cloud consumption, whether that cloud consumption was software as a service, 
platform as a service or infrastructure as a service. So it was around 2015 that was the genesis of the idea to strive to create um, a series of control standards that a cloud provider or a series of cloud providers would just deliver out of the out of the, uh, the box. So controls as a service to carry on Villa's um, uh, earlier comments. Um, and what that would mean is that the entire global financial services industry would work to the same set of standards and obviously the benefits that you get when you move to a standards-based mechanism of control. Yeah, and we've actually talked about that in a, some of the previous episodes, uh, especially when you're working in a, in a network environment with, uh, for, for example, with blockchain technologies. Uh, it, it tends to be that you have to comply with, uh, with every bank's uh, cloud requirements separately. Uh, and, uh, and when you do deploy those networks, it's, it becomes a kind of unbearable amount of work uh, for the network operator. So uh, I think initiatives like this uh, will dramatically scale up uh, the capabilities uh, of, uh, of uh, network, especially decentralized networks to deploy uh, in a banking environment. So yeah, it's interesting work. I mean, I, I, I mean there's lots of parallels isn't there, with, with, uh, with electricity or with networks. Before, if, if networks didn't have um, set protocols and set standards that were agreed by all the network carriers in the world, it would not be possible without a huge overhead to actually communicate with one another. All the same on the, the revolution associated with electricity when it moved from steam to electricity. Initially, there was lots of different um, standards, but ultimately ratified onto one, which then allowed the whole growth in that marketplace. Standards allow innovation um, in a consistent fashion, but allow the pace of innovation to increase. As you mentioned on blockchain, if every single installation you have to do requires a whole raft of different um, customized work to plug into a control framework that's different to somewhere else, there's no value there there's no business benefit there it is just complexity that needs to be eradicated and that's the idea and that's the mission that we're on at ibm to push through this controls for the uh, for the entire industry you actually mentioned the howard chapter one uh, it's interesting there's a lot of discussions now uh, around the fact that we're entering into chapter two of cloud computing and and you've mentioned this on on a number of uh, presentations and interviews that you've been on. I, I wonder, could you share with the listeners maybe what we mean or what you mean by chapter two and what what is involved in this shift from chapter one to chapter two? Yeah, so, so chapter one, as I mentioned earlier, cl cloud has got a huge amount of hype behind it. Cloud will fix everything when in reality it won't. It's a, it's a tool to be used to address business problems. Um, mm. And what's happened um, if you look at market growth is the majority of companies, um, the vast majority of companies have only dabbled with cloud as a capability. They've not used it for their mission critical workloads. And there's a range of reasons for that, not least of which is certainly in heavily regulated industries, there isn't a set of standards and controls that everybody can have a degree of comfort. Um, so chapter two starts to actually get to the, the, the next level of maturity and, and, and this seems strange um, to say, well, isn't cloud already mature? And, and, and reality isn't. Um, it's market penetration is around 15 to 20%. Um, so, so coming through its kind of early adopter phase into um, the early uh, phase of more mainstream adoption, but being paused for a while in terms of how companies think about they de-risk the environment. They don't become um, in a position where they've actually put more risk into the environment, either financially, technically, or from a cyber perspective for the consumption of cloud. So chapter two is, I guess, is kind of taking this kind of early adoption phase of an offering into the next phase of um, how it will be consumed in a mission critical way. 
And that's where IBM comes in because IBM's heritage isn't the answer's cloud, what's the question? We look at the full breadth of what's the business processes that you're trying to decalcify, what is meaningful in terms of the assessment of the technology estate that you have. Not everything is appropriate for cloud, um, but what is and how do you pull that together architecturally, architecture being the key, key piece here. Um, um, and then how do you run that um, going forward to ensure that you do meet the business imperatives and the objectives that you set in a controlled fashion? That's what chapter two is. Um, and from my viewpoint where I set up Bank of America, where I worked at every single technology company there was, you could imagine, large and small, I could see that there was a huge gap in the marketplace. There was an untapped need where if you purely wanted to be cloud, you, you, for cloud sake, go to a cloud service provider. But you don't want cloud for just for cloud sake. You want it to drive business imperatives. And those dedicated CSPs, as I mentioned, only had one tool, which is cloud. Um, and that was a, was a gap in the marketplace. IBM can fill that, particularly when it acquired Red Hat OpenShift, because of the reasons I mentioned earlier on in terms of the importance of open source technologies to drive the pace of innovation. Um, so that's, that's what I mean by chapter two, and it's where the real business benefit uh, will be harnessed. And what's the real business benefit? It's where you can innovate and collaborate, not just within the four walls of your enterprise. You can do so with all sorts of different ecosystem partners. And the pace of innovation that we will see then will be phenomenal because we're drawing upon the intellect of the collective um, uh, human race across different marketplaces and in different disciplines, um, but, but in a way that will be controlled and connected. It adds intelligence to the network connectivity that we had um, up until this point to put the human element into the, uh, into the, the thought processes that we have. So, so basically the future of banking is, is going to be built on hybrid multi-cloud? It is, yes, without question. And let me just define what a open hybrid multi-cloud is. Open is on open standards, um, but they are standards, open source-based technologies curated by distribution capabilities like Red Hat. Hybrid, in my definition, is on-premise and off-premise. Customers will still have a need for um, a limited number of data centers, but still a number of data centers that they run for a raft of uh, technology and regulatory basis. Um, and uh, cloud in terms they consume from different cloud providers, which most companies already do. They already consume from different software as a service providers. But what they need to do is to ensure that those software as a service providers are running their applications on cloud infrastructure that has the right maturity in terms of the control frameworks they operate within. Otherwise, they put their phones at jeopardy and their, uh, their customers' data at jeopardy. Fantastic. Thank you, Howard. Um, unfortunately, my friends, as always, time flies when we are having fun and, and really good, interesting discussions as we're having today. So it comes, unfortunately, to, to the end of another episode for Fintech's Daydreaming. Uh, but before we go, Howard, Vila and I would like to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can find you, get in touch with you. Um, so you can follow me on um, Twitter, which I think is um, Howard Borville um, on Twitter. Pretty straightforward to find. Um, mm. or, follow me on, or follow me on LinkedIn and communicate to me through, via LinkedIn as well. Um, so it's the same. Obviously, the name there, you'll find me there. Um, and I'm always massively interested in terms of sharing ideas with people, getting different perspectives. That's the real exciting part of any role, whether you work in a profit or a non-profit, which is just to harness the energy of people's ideas, and in particular, their curiosity, 
um, in terms of the questions that will be asked. You learn far more from questions very often as you do from listening to um, presentations. Absolutely. So fantastic. And thank you again for coming on the show, Howard. And thank you for the great insights and, and thoughts that you've shared with us here today. I've definitely learned something new and had a good discussion, and I'm sure Vila has as well. And yes, thank indeed. you. Yeah. And thank you to all of our great listeners out there. So as Vila shared at the start of today's episode, Vila and I have had this, this idea, right? As you all know, we have a, we've set a precedence, an expectation that we start every episode uh, of the FinTech Daydreaming podcast with a joke, admittedly often a bad joke, but, but a, a joke nevertheless. Well, we thought it might be fun to give this section over to you as our listeners. We will give you a shout out if you give us a joke. Give us a message and then we'll read it out at the beginning of a podcast episode. Obviously, if the joke is, is uh, too rude, we maybe will we'll not read it out, but send it to us and we'll see what happens. Knock, knock. Who's there? Detective. Detective who? I'll ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. It's my, it's my seven-year-old seven son's joke who told me yesterday. Right, good. Thank you, guys. That was really good fun. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you Howard. very much, Howard. Thank you so much. Now, also, do you have a fintech subject you would like Villa and I to cover in a future episode? Or maybe you have a great story to share and would like to join us as a guest on the show, as Howard has done here today. If you do, ping us on LinkedIn, YouTube, or, or on the Anchor FM page, or even now on Twitter, we've started a, a Twitter channel for, uh, for the podcast. Just get in touch and let us know. Villa and I will be back in two weeks' time with another great guest, so we hope to see you then. Thank you all for listening. This has been Fintech Daydreaming.